Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. As always, I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, a look at how insects have been used in warfare throughout history. It's fascinating and gross. You won't want to miss it. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Or you can text us for 30 cent 53106, old school. And we get to all of those comments exclusively in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. First, though, as always, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. And we're joined by broadcaster and double doctor Lara Dungan and science communicator Catherine McGuinness. You're both very welcome. Our first story, uh, Catherine, is about futuristic contact lenses. Yeah, so these are telescopic uh, contact lenses that have been developed and it allows the wearer to magnify their sight by up to three times. And the idea behind this really is to help with age-related macular degeneration or AMD, which is it's an inherited, it's an inherited element to the eye disease. It's the leading cause of blindness in the Western world and uh, one of the top three causes of blindness worldwide. So how these work is there is a very, very small aluminium telescope in the contact lens made up of mirrors and filters when the eye when the light hits the eye uh, it refracts and basically how you change your zoom is if you blink with your right eye you can zoom in and when you blink with your left eye you can zoom out now obviously you can't walk around zoomed out the whole or zoomed in the whole time because that's going to limit your field of vision so you can just have a normal vision if you're say crossing the road where you need a, a large peripheral uh, to see your cars are coming at you but if you meet someone who's that you don't recognize or you can't quite make out, you can zoom in and then recognize their face or even an object if you're looking out. I mean, in practice, that sounds so cool. I mean, I'm sure it's very cumbersome. And for people who who have vision loss, they wouldn't see it as, ooh, this is a great new toy. But uh, I can see it as being uh, a really interesting thing that people may use in the future for all sorts of different applications. This uh, work originally started with DARPA, the um, slightly sinister uh, American research funding agency. Uh, We we did a program on them not so long ago. We'll uh, repost it in the Future Proof podcast uh, in which uh, they spend millions and millions developing all sorts of crazy technology and some of it really pans out so Wi-Fi for example um, and uh, and the internet um, but this technology is obviously hugely microscopic like this is developed for, for drones but the fact that it fits on, an, on a contact lens is unbelievable yeah. are, are, there, are there mechanical things in in the contact lens or how does it shift zoom do we know? It's actually the polarization of the glasses that changes focus. And, and these contact lenses, they're very, very slim. So a normal contact lens is about 13 or 14 millimeters. These guys are only a little bit thicker than that. So, you know, they're very wearable. The only thing is they're not breathable. So that's the next development for, to make them breathable for long term use. I'd heard um, that DARPA were also working on sort of low light uh, contact lenses and infrared uh, contact lenses. Like it's amazing to think of some of the technologies that uh, that we're developing at such a nano scale. I have to say, I, I do think this is a really cool idea. I wonder how practical it might be for someone who is um, living with severely impaired vision. Uh, and obviously, we're quite a bit away from practical implementation. But I thought it was a really cool story. Laura, our second story has to do with heart repair using a synthetic version of mRNA. So I tell you what, cardiac cells, which are heart cells or cardiomyocytes, they're called because they're muscle cells, 
are really, really amazing in many ways, but actually slightly useless in others. So they did research a few years ago and they found that if you're the age of approximately 50, more than half of your cardiac cells, and I I don't mean like, you know, are, are similar to, I mean, are literally the cells that were there when you were born. So these cells are 50 years old and they very rarely turn over. I mean, in a young person of 25, about 1% turns over a year. By the time you get older, it's about half a percent. And they've just done this new research in the University of Houston because if you think about it then, if the cells are there for so long, but they get damaged, they really can't grow back again. And if you have a heart attack or an MI, a myocardial infarction, and those cells are permanently damaged, then you're in big trouble. And the University of Houston have done this new research where they've used a synthetic version of mRNA. So mRNA is uh, is like DNA, but it's only single-stranded. And its job is to take a message from DNA and turn it into protein. And what they've done is they've injected um, in, vi- in vitro first, which is just in cells, in a, in a liquid, and then also in vivo into mouse hearts, a type of mRNA that produces two types of proteins. So one of them causes them to to turn more into stem cells and the other transcription factor or the other protein causes them to multiply up much more readily. And it's it's just fascinating. So what happens is um, within 24 hours, there's a 15 times increase in the number of nuclei that they see in the cardiac cells. And within about a month, there's almost complete healing of the pump function of our heart. Because at the end of the day, our heart is a pump. And, and it's really, really remarkable because also this mRNA disappears after a few days. So it's not quite the same as putting in, say, a virus that has maybe some, you know, mutated genes in it that could have the potential to go wrong. There could be biosafety issues. This mRNA is gone within a few days. So if this does translate into humans, it really would be the most remarkable way to heal cardiac cells. And it's not just um, repairing the heart. Uh, scarring is almost overturned, right? And and that is a big deal when we talk about um, you know death of cells in a, in a heart. One of the, the the biggest problems is that scarring reduces function, reduces blood flow, and so on. Am I right? Absolutely, hundred percent. That that's the problem with the and, and myocardial infarction. Obviously, a lot of the the cells die, but the the problem is as well those turn into scar tissue, and that then further impairs the pump function. So it's exactly like you said. The scars are going away. They're really regenerating. Scar tissue is being removed, and new cells are coming in in their place. And now again, this is only in mouse hearts, but really huge potential for the future. Catherine, our third story has to do with fire. Yes, an ancient fire, not just any old fire, ancient fire. I always like to wind up my uh, colleagues in the National Museum by saying archaeology isn't a real science. Uh, but this is going <laughs> to kind of put an end to this. So in archaeology, we have this hypothesis called the cooking hypothesis, that at some point in our evolution, we started to use fire and uh, control fire. And it helped us stay warm. It helped us cr- create weapons, ward off predators. But it also helped us to cook food, which killed pathogens but it also helped us increase our intake of protein, possibly leading then to our bigger brains. Now, this theory has been around for a long time, but uh, very little data to back it up. And that's because until now, really, any sort of fire use in archaeological sites are only identified by vision. And there are really only five archaeological sites in the world that has any sort of ancient fire evidence. Wow. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's, this breakthrough is unbelievable. So it was uh, done by the Wiseman 
Institute in Israel, and they were looking at uh, artifacts from from the Paleolithic era. So they started looking at artifacts that were 200,000 to 400,000 years old, and using a kind of a combination of AI and uh, spectroscopy, they found use of controlled fire on these tools. So using that same method then, they went on to look at older uh, artefacts from Galilee and animal fossils. And they had 26 pieces of flint that showed this control fire use. And some of them would have had uh, temperatures exceeding 600 degrees Celsius. So well over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. So this is backing up this cooking theory. And um, it, it's really exciting in, in the area of archaeology at the moment. So when you say controlled fire, how do we know that these tools weren't damaged by a wild bushfire that happened naturally, for example? Well, it's, it's the artefacts we're looking at. So it's, it's the context of the artefacts, where they came from. We know they were fashioned by humans. We know that their um, structure had changed due to fire, as well as those flint food, um, tools. There was also... Oh, right. So Sorry, you're talking about the tools were made by fire. Mm, yeah. So. Ah, OK, but w- would that not have been apparent by looking at them? No, not ah. by sight. No, so the, the, this this new methodology actually it gives us that scientific proof, not just by sight, it, that that this was actually used. Fire was used to fashion these tools. Also, they were looking at elephant tusk, and they saw that the elephant tusk had changed structure, and that could only have been done with by use of fire and controlled fire. So does this change our understanding of our use of fire through history? Does does it change the date uh, at which we first started using fire as far as we know? What it does is it looks at the Paleolithic, very, very early Paleolithic. So we're talking about when Homus habilis was moving into Homus erectus, so around that time of evolution, and the relationship of early hominins with fire. And from this now we can start to look at how this changed other behaviours. I mean, obviously, the cooking of food is one. So how are other, how behaviours with fire and how relationship with fire changed over time and how this led and helped the evolution of the homonyms over time. Amazing. Uh, Lara, our final story is about smelly people. It really is. Do you remember... Have you showered today? I uh, Not yet, actually. I've got COVID, so, so give, give me a break. Um, but I will. It's on my list. <laughs> Way to call me out, Johnny. Um, do you remember, speaking of actually the great unshowered, do you remember at Electric Picnic a good few years ago, we did a live show where you made me sniff a bunch of T-shirts to see yes, which I one do. I found the most attractive. And luckily, I didn't pick the one that had been on Aiden's dog overnight. Um, and and there was, there's a lot of research that shows that um, people pick partners that are immunologically different from them so that their children have quite a variety in, in their immune system. But this new research, which came out of the Wiseman Institute in Israel, shows that in terms of friends, we actually pick people that smell the same as us. So they took 20 pairs of people that say that they clicked instantly. So these are same-sex, non-sexual partners. So your gal pals and your, and your guy pals. And they asked uh, both a machine and humans to smell the T-shirts that these people had been wearing. And what they found was the people who felt that they just clicked instantly smelled much more similar than the people who were completely unrelated in terms of their relationship. And then they did a second experiment where they took 17 people and they had them play non-verbal games. And afterwards, they asked them to rate who did they click with? You know, who did you get on with? Who did you do the game well with? And they also made them wear stinky T-shirts. And the people that they felt they clicked with 
of the people that smelled most similarly to them. The the bit that comes out a little bit strange from this is that that one of the things they say is, you know, we tend to smell people when we first meet them. And I was thinking, how do we do that? And apparently when you shake someone's hand, you then sniff your own hand to, to have a good old, a good old little inhale of what that person smells like. So we are apparently subconsciously sniffing people we meet. And if they smell like us, we probably want to get on with them. This blew my mind about five years ago when this study came out where they filmed participants meeting strangers for the first time. And sure enough, as you, as you say, when you meet someone new for the first time, you may do it completely subconsciously. In fact, I hope you do. But you sniff your hand. You don't notice it. You might put your hand to, to, to your nose or you might uh, actively sniff in. But on, on camera, it's, it's conclusively shown that when you meet a new person, <laughs> you sniff them to see what their body chemistry is like. And presumably that gives you some sort of cues as to whether or not you would like to mate with them or uh, <laughs> be friends with them or that they might be um, diseased or whatever. But uh, absolutely horrifying realisation <laughs> at the time. And, 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 and so uh, this presumably is just interesting. We can't um, engineer I, I think, smells yeah. to make people like us more. I no, I don't think so. I think it is just interesting. It's We just tend to be friends with people who are like us and we mate with people who are not like us, I guess. So just interesting. I wonder what the role of perfume is in masking that because obviously perfumes change our body scent to others. I wonder, is that, is that a bad thing? Are, are perfumes actually stopping us from meeting our, our soulmates? Um, <laughs> Probably. Well, they do. if you take the pill, if a woman takes the pill, she doesn't she doesn't pick a man who is dissimilar to her. So the pill can actually mask it. So I presume something on the surface like perfume definitely could. Fascinating. Well, Dr. Lara Dungan and Catherine McGuinness, thanks as always. If you've seen classic B-movies like 1954's Them or the bugs from the space classic Starship Troopers, the words insect warfare probably conjure up some quite specific and quite likely very silly imagery. And yet insects have featured in human conflicts in very real and often very terrifying ways since the beginning of the historical record, and likely long before it. Jeffrey Longwood is a professor of natural sciences and humanities at the University of Wyoming and the author of Six-Legged Soldiers Using Insects as Weapons of War. He joins me now. Uh, Jeff, this is such a fascinating subject. I can't believe we haven't covered it before. But how old is the idea of using insects as weapons of war? Ah, uh, Well, let's see. It's at least as old as the human written record and... Um we have good reason to believe that it goes back at least 100,000 years into the upper Paleolithic when humans were, uh, we were pretty much uh, throwing things at each other, stones and spears and whatnot. Um, so it's almost a logical certainty that we were also throwing things like beehives and, and wasp nests at each other. Um, all part of, of human aggression going back, uh, as I say, 100,000 years, maybe longer. The use of insects uh, is quite diverse, actually. They can be used in lots of different ways to cause trouble to the enemy. And one of those is by spreading disease. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, the, the ways in which insects have been used to spread disease to weaken enemy combatants? Sure. That, um, that practice also goes back at least 2,000, maybe 2,500 years Um and, and people were actually using insects to spread disease to their enemy before they knew that insects were their allies. And the idea here was that uh, military commanders knew that if they would, they could pin down their enemy in swampy areas, 
that it would often be the case that the enemy's forces would be depleted through fevers. Now, they thought it was the air, bad air, malaria. That's where malaria comes from. They thought it was the air that was causing the illness, not the mosquitoes that were biting the uh. enemy. The point is they were using insects, uh, a kind of entomological warfare in a strategic way, as early as 300 BC. It wasn't wow. until the early 1900s where we, we discovered that insects were actually the carriers of pathogens, um, that the more sophisticated forms of entomological warfare in which insects um, were purposely bred and, and released and infected come into their fore. But uh, we'd been using insects even a little bit unwittingly for centuries before that. One of the most horrifying examples of this in the book is from World War II and the Japanese Unit 731. Right. Uh, Unit 731 was led by uh, a man named Shiro Ishii, and he was in charge of the Japanese biological warfare program. And initially he thought what they would do is breed up uh, uh, huge numbers of microbes and then spread those through aerosols or pouring them into the water. But that turned out not to be very effective. And when he discovered with his scientists that the key was vectors, something to protect the pathogen, to amplify its numbers, and then to spread it directly to the enemy, that's where they came up with their breakthrough, which was first the use of uh, bubonic plague-infected fleas. And at their height, if you can imagine this, they had more than 4,000 uh, breeding machines or incubators, and they could churn out 500 million plague-infected fleas a year. So um, they were producing them in massive numbers and, and releasing them onto uh, primarily uh, Chinese targets. Good God. Um, so, so these fleas that um, were infected with the plague and cholera, how many people did they kill? Well, yeah, the fleas were infected with, with plague. The cholera was being spread by flies. So they had a thing called a yagi bomb, um, and it was a bomb in which there was a slurry of cholera bacteria and then a container, uh, a chamber with flies. And when the bomb would break open, the flies would be splattered with the cholera, and then the flies would carry that out into the, into the populace. And so if we look Good just God. at... Look just at two major attacks using Yagi bombs um, in Yunnan and Shandong provinces. The best estimates are that the Japanese killed 410,000 people with cholera uh, epidemics that were triggered by cholera-coated flies. So, I mean, I, this is not oh, a defense man. of the atomic bombs, but the Japanese killed more Chinese with insect and weapons then the Americans killed Japanese with atomic weapons. Oh, my God. And so when we th think about this, like this is a time when um, Adolf Hitler was trying to get his hands on the nuclear bomb himself, right? I mean, why did the Allies or Adolf Hitler not, not try and employ something like this? Or did they? Well, um, the Nazis had uh, kind of a low-grade uh, biological weapons program. Um, they were mostly looking at typhus. So um, it's another insect-borne disease uh, spread by lice. But they're you know, they concentrated more on, well, at least in, in the world of insects, their focus was on destroying crops rather than infecting people, which is kind of the third way we can use insects to wage war. There's pain, <sighs> there's disease, and then there's hunger. And 
the uh, the Nazis uh, by 1944 had built rearing facilities to produce 30 million Colorado potato beetles um, with the intention of dropping them on England. Oh man, like what? The ingenuity of these people is terrifying. But but Hitler didn't employ biological weapons in that way. No, apparently not. As a matter of fact, um, uh, Hitler, because Hitler himself was gassed in World War I, um, the reports are that he was very averse to non-conventional weapons, um, particularly chemical weapons. Now, the mm. Nazis did develop um, some, some devastating, potentially devastating chemical weapons. Interestingly enough, those also tie back into uh, entomological warfare. The Nazis were afraid that the Allies were going to drop Colorado potato beetles on them. And so they began the development of an insecticide production or, or, or insecticide uh, novel uh, program to, to control what they anticipated to be a new wave of infestations by potato beetles. In the course of developing those insecticides, they came across a class of compounds um, that uh, are still used today in different, in different forms. But these compounds were the foundation for the nerve gases. Oh, and so the Nazis developed nerve gases as a spinoff from their efforts to develop insecticides to protect themselves from entomological warfare. So insects are, are involved even, even in that dark chapter of history. What about um, the, the, the more basic methods of using insects in warfare as, as weapons directly? Uh, is there a lot of evidence that insects could be useful in that way? You sort of feel like that is not a very reliable form of inflicting pain on somebody. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, there's, um, you know, in today's world, I don't think, uh, you know, dropping beehives <laughs> on your enemy is going to have much of an effect. But or, or throwing scorpions, or, right? Or, or, yeah, or throwing scorpions. Yes, exactly. Um, but even in the modern age, um, uh, insects have a tremendous amount of potential because uh, insect-borne diseases are still a serious problem. Uh, you know, we were learning that in the United States with West Nile virus, and we're learning that around the world as insect-borne diseases spread. Um, and so it, 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 I think it has two uses, and one would be uh, kind of an economic use, where it's sort of a long-term uh, impact on another nation's health or agriculture. And the other one is terrorism. The idea of becoming uh, infected with a deadly insect-borne disease is something that a, that a bioterrorist could play upon. So that's mostly how insects uh, have been used in warfare? Because I sort of imagine that, um, as you see in some movies, that uh, the stings of a scorpion could be used to infiltrate enemy camps and that sort of thing. They, they're not typically used as direct weapons than insects. Well, actually, uh, you know, the scorpions have been, um, and, and they have been for, for centuries. You can go back to um, the siege of Hatra in the second century, in which the people of that city repulsed the Romans by dropping uh, scorpions onto, uh, onto the soldiers who were trying to climb the walls. But it continues all the way up to the, the certainly the 20th century when in, in the Vietnam War, in the tunnel warfare, these are underground tunnels uh, dug in and maintained by the, the Viet Cong, um, they put uh, booby traps in those um, and, and armed those booby traps with scorpions. And so 
the sting of a scorpion has uh, been used for 2,000 years as a way of repelling an enemy uh, from your stronghold. So no, scorpions uh, uh, continue to, to make an appearance in warfare. Are they, um, are they reliable? <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that if I threw a scorpion at someone, the scorpion would just run away. Um, <laughs> are, are scorpions reliable weapons? Well, I think they're, re- well, it's it's kind of a numbers game. If I throw one scorpion at you, it might run away. If I drop 100 <laughs> scorpions on you, uh, one of them is going to figure out what to do. Um, and so hmm. if you can produce large numbers or release them in enclosed areas, as in the tunnels of Chi in, in Vietnam, um, you have a pretty high success rate. I mean, the other part of that, especially in modern age, is that we kind of have this um, this fear, right? So not only are you inflicting pain, but there's a psychological element to being inside a dark cave with a bunch of scorpions. Mm. Uh, and that particularly came into being in the Black Well. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, now that's not um, that's not scorpions, but it is a way of inflicting pain. the The story there goes back into the 1830s. Um, in a period, you know, called the Great Game, when when uh, Russia and, and and Britain were vying for control of Central Asia, and at that time, one of the key uh, the key locations was uh, the the city of Bukhara in in Uzbekistan, and the Emir of Bukhara was a very very dark and evil person who developed a, a torture chamber, uh, which has been called the Black Hole or the Bug Pit. And what this fellow did was uh, it was a um, several meters deep, and he stocked it with insects called assassin bugs. Now, assassin bugs don't normally bite people, but you know if you're a predator and you're hungry, um, you know you're not very picky. So they would dump the assassin bugs in there. Sometimes throw them some raw meat, but then um, keep them alive enough so that when they dropped a prisoner in, the assassin bugs would it would feed on this living human being. Now, assassin bugs uh, feed by injecting their prey with enzymes that break down proteins and then liquefying their prey and then sucking up the liquid. And so these bugs would inject these victims and, and it was reportedly felt like being pierced with a hot needle and it would begin to literally dissolve the flesh off of their bones. And so it was like slowly being dissolved by being pierced by hot needles. So, oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Um, what about um, uh, using these ants by uh, sort of manipulating them? Like, uh, are we at a stage where we can use these ants as drones and you know, deliver pathogens by connecting them with tiny chips or IR receivers or whatever. Like, is there any research that you came across where people were trying to hijack um, insects to, to, to spy or deliver some sort of poison? Oh, sure. There's a, there's a great deal of research there. I mean, at the most basic level, engineers are looking into uh, robotic systems that are based on the six-legged platform of insects because they're so stable under uneven terrain. Insect flight is is a phenomenal event in evolutionary history that we've just not been able to mimic with microengineering. And so uh, that's drawn a lot of attention. Could we use what you know what they call entomopters, like um, dragon-sized, dragonfly-sized air vehicles 
um, for spying or for delivering uh, pathogens or for delivering poisons. In some cases, engineers have headed in this other direction and said, boy, you know, we just don't have the technology to micro-engineer a flying vehicle the size of a bumblebee. So maybe what we could do is implant in a cockroach or a, or a bee or whatever it is, electronics that would then allow us to control it. So basically <laughs> flying an insect with a joystick to where we want it to go. And maybe it's carrying a tiny packet of pathogens or poisons or maybe a, 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 a minuscule camera. Um, so that angle is also being investigated. I think I read about uh, some of that work where they had managed to hijack a very small animal. I wasn't sure if it was a large ant or something where they managed to sort of stimulate it to go left and right, um, essentially creating um, remote control insects, which is, um, it sounds very sci-fi, but then if you think that they're being used for military purposes, it becomes very sinister indeed. And I guess, finally, I wanted to ask, what about terrorism? I suppose what we call it terrorism when, when we're talking about attacks on the West, right? But um, <laughs> surely some of these, some of these individuals who want to do harm to countries uh, that they believe have wronged them, surely biological warfare in the in, in the premise of disease or mosquitoes that carry dengue fever or so on, surely that is a reasonably easy thing to to introduce and get away with. Is that the case or is it very hard to to get enough individual insects to cause a, a severe problem in a city or whatever? No, actually, it's frighteningly easy. I would be deeply disappointed, quite frankly, if we produced a master student in entomology who couldn't devise um, a production system to wage entomological warfare. Um, wow. We would prefer... We'd prefer that they not, of course. <laughs> it's really not very complicated. We have There's all kinds of well-known uh, systems for mass-producing insects. And so, yes, um, infecting and releasing insects. I mean, the simplest way of doing it, uh, for instance, uh, we don't have in the West a, a particularly nasty disease called Rift Valley Fever. Uh, it's a mosquito-borne disease. But uh, to introduce that, uh, say, uh, to the United States, uh, rather than going through a whole lot of production problems, you could just collect um, uh, dried mosquito eggs from an area that's known to have uh, Rift Valley fever, dry them out, uh, and then drop them into, into a pond or a lake in, in, you know, in uh, Central Park and probably have a decent chance of getting uh, that disease started. So it's very, very easy. We Sometimes I refer to insects as sort of a this is dark, but the box cutters of unconventional warfare, you know, they they, they mm. brought down one of the planes in 9-11 with basically armed with box cutters, the simplest of all devices. And insects are that simple. Um, yeah. Now, we can do more elegant things. And genetic engineering is not uh, is not something that requires a great deal of cost and technology anymore. And so genetically engineering, uh, uh, say, a native insect to a particular country, so that it was a, a competent vector of a new disease, that's possible as well. So, you know, and, and really what you're talking about with terrorism is, you know, what, what military analysts sometimes refer to as asymmetrical warfare. These terrorist cells or, 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 or um, um, various countries that don't have the ability to produce, um, you know, bombs and tanks and whatnot, 
um, we'll have the ability to produce some very simple and very effective weapons, including entomological weapons. God, it's terrifying when you, when you put it like that. Jeffrey Lockwood is the author of Six-Legged Soldiers Using Insects as Weapons of War. It's a fascinating book, extremely well-researched, with lots of things you didn't realize you needed to know. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, when I was living in Malahide, when I was just a kid, my next-door neighbor got attacked by um, a hive of bees. I think it was self-defense. I think he kicked or hit the, the hive, um, not knowing fully what was in there. And it was, a, it was a horrible thing. The whole road turned about it. And it was, uh, he was off in hospital and he was like out for weeks. It was a really hardcore thing. And it was then I realized how dangerous these things can be. Um, love to hear if that's ever happened to you. Have, you. have you ever had a really bad insect attack and, um, and recovered? Um, don't want to hear from you if you've, if you've died or it's if it's a very sad story I think I've had enough of those you can you can keep your sad stories just a good story of overcoming an insect bite <laughs> producer oh, Aidan McKelvey joins me I don't know like is that bad I just don't want to I don't want to get an email and it's like well I got stung by a hornet in my eye and now I'm blind like I don't not that I don't care I just I've, I've I had like it's been an onslaught the news in the last while and I got my bike neck today. I've just, I don't want any more bad news. I want a funny oh, no. story about somebody stung by a scorpion and then they're okay. Yeah, no, it's not good. Yeah, yeah and you're, you're so afraid of a bad news story that you're telling people not to tell us their story if they died. <laughs> That's it. I don't, think I, I don't think you need that disclaimer, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. Or, but, or, or if they've been bad, like if it's a sad story still, like if it's... You know, if it if it's had a, a tangible long life effect on you, I don't want that. I want I want a story where you got stung on the nipple and it was and hurt for ages, but now you're fine. That sort of like something will make me laugh at your misfortune, but in general we can we can giggle about it because it's in the rearview mirror. That's the sort of story I want. Rearview mirror anecdotes. That's what I'm looking for. I I actually have such a story. Oh, excellent, not. excellent. Uh, you can email yeah, us scienceatnewstalk.com. Or you can uh, tweet us. We're at News Talk Science. Aiden, this is a sort of story that we're looking for. Off you go. Over to you. I think this is the sort of story we look for. I went down to the Gale Talked one summer. And uh, in the Gale Talked, for anyone who doesn't know, these are Irish colleges down the west of Ireland. Uh, you don't get put in the same house as people generally who are in your school or in your class. They try to get you to make new friends and go to a house with all people from different schools. But by some mistake, I had been put in a house with a guy who was in class with me. And it was a lovely sunny day, the first day we got down there. And my friend Luke was outside the front of the house with all the other boys kind of getting to know each other out in the sunshine, lying on the grass. And I had been in the bathroom or something. And so I was the last person to come out. And I came out the door, big like pep in my step, ready to say hello to everyone. And as I did, a wasp flew right up my nose. No. Straight into my nostril, right? Why? Which nobody saw because they were all looking. I don't know. I just was coming out and he just flew into my nostril. Were you and snorting honey or something? It. No, that's bees. I don't, isn't it? I don't think so. I've only started doing that habit recently. No, I used to. I used to be. I used to be clean, man. Um, I was coming out the door, and I basically they didn't see this happen. When I opened the door, I suddenly basically started hitting myself in the face, going ah. <laughs> uh, which obviously is, which clearly, limited your clearly friend pool for the next week. 
<laughs> exactly. Frightened all of the guys. They didn't know what was going on. And and then basically the wasp came out of my nose. I don't think I got him out or he flew out. And you could see everyone was kind of shocked. But my friend Luke, who obviously knew me, thought this was hilarious. So he started like breaking down laughing. He was lying on the ground on the grass. And because I was kind of angry and I was a kid, I ran over and like rooted him up the hole, <laughs> kicked him in the arse. But nobody else knew that I knew him. Oh, so as far as they as far as they were all concerned, you were a psychopath. Could, yeah, had come out of the house, smacking himself in the face, and then just kicked a complete stranger <laughs> for no reason. Um, so it took me a while to kind of uh, get back on their good side. But that was my whimsical story. Wow, I mean, I mean kudos to you that you got onto the good side of a person you kicked up the hole in front of a whole group of people. Um, well done. But that, ah, that he is knew. testament he was, to he was afraid. You know what you're like. <laughs> yeah, you know what. <laughs> you know what teenage boys are like they do that sort of thing all the time i still have a ring in my ear because he whacked me over the back of the head with a maths book in the middle of maths class so you know we're at least even boys eh boys um boys, yeah. so would you want to talk about um anything else is there any other um would you have any other anecdotes from the week <laughs> i do believe it or not about a half an hour ago i'm in the studio here in news talk a bono lookalike came in yeah and I was in the middle Saw of talking to a colleague and the bottom. Yeah, he came in. It was incredible. I like, I don't usually I see lookalikes. Like I, I kind of score high on that facial recognition thing that I did. I did tests when we had our faces special. And usually I see lookalikes. I'm like, that doesn't look like the person. That's just somebody dressed the same way as they dress. Hmm. But this guy was amazing. Like, cause so he came in and he, he bonded, like he kind of hammed up the bonus. He was like, hello, everybody. Don't get up. You don't need to get up. And I was like, is this, like something in my head was like, this isn't quite right. But he was standing right beside me and he'd put his hands out to shake my hand. And I was like, uh, uh, is this Bono? What do I do here? Because I'm not you sure. Sh- I mean, shake his hand regardless. What, what is it? What is, what is it I, to you? I know I, I did shake his hand, but I had a pause and I was confused. And I because because what he'd said, the way he'd come in was like so kind of outlandish. And people, you know, in, in work, we obviously you would know we see a lot of people who would be celebrities they come in they don't generally tend to go look at me i'm here so, yeah so i was kind of like should i should i laugh at this <laughs> or should i just pretend that it's normal well you had a really difficult time I took, yeah it was tough <laughs> it was tough <laughs> but uh no he was cool like i'm still a bit flustered because i'm like i don't know i was like did i make a fool of myself there but anyway this guy looked incredibly like bono <laughs> that's the story i almost i met someone who looked incredibly like bono how was your week <laughs> Um, well, I got my bike nicked, which wasn't great. Um, I didn't put... You know what? Here's a PSA for anybody out there. Things that are of value, put your phone number on it. I mean, that's the basic minimum protection you should be doing to things that cost over a thousand euro, which this bike did, unfortunately, and I'm very upset about it. So, yeah. Anyway, let's not dwell on it because you met Bono and I lost my bike. So, we had very different weeks. Indeed. Um, so last week we were talking about fair seas and the um, the fact that only 2% of Irish seas are actually protected. And that I feel that we probably should up that a little. The fair seas program wanted multiplied by 10, I think, um, or 15x the amount of protected waters we have. I'm all for that. Yet I understand some people need the, the, the seas for their livelihood. I do feel like we're in a look out the window if your window isn't already melting sort of situation, or obviously in Ireland, the reverse is, is true. Um, so someone says, uh, 
2.3% of Ireland's marine is nominal protection. The majority of coastal sites have no protection. Threats include dredging, aggregate extraction and poorly planned wind farms. We must do better, Eamon Ryan. Um, and Owen says, absolutely, even the species for which these coastal uh, protected sites are designated, protection is very limited and doesn't exclude killing or injuring of the protected species. I mean, I would have thought that is a very minimum <laughs> in a protection order that you are not allowed to kill or injure the species. Like, what else is there to do in terms of a protection order? If the protection order says, yeah, look, these species are... They're pretty, you know, like the shark and that whale, they're pretty important. We've got to protect them. Okay. Is it okay if I kill them? Sure. Like, that makes no sense to me. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> if I remember correctly, it wasn't that was Regina was saying, that they wanted to minimize things like, uh, you know, um, dredging the oceans with nets and, like, taking every single fish, like, large-scale fishing. But it didn't mean you couldn't go out in your little dinghy with a fishing rod. That's more or less what you suggested. It wasn't to... No, but, you, but, but also, like, these these protected species in protected areas, you, you can also kill them, it seems, which is a bit weird. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That's probably it. You can technically still fish them as an individual, but just not as a... That is just not protecting them, in my, my, my idea. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, not really, no. Uh, Guibara Conservation Group got in touch saying West, Go- West Donegal has been omitted by a bunch of academics drawing lines on maps and sitting in Cork who were never in Donegal in their lives. The cheek of them, we will not be sacrificed to the mining agenda so they can get the blue pencils out and start over. Uh, look, I mean, if there's a, a an, an important area, I don't think Fair Seas will be like, oh, well, forget about Donegal. Uh, get in touch. I'm sure if you have a good argument for why these waters should be protected, um, and it sounds like you have, get in touch with them. I'm sure they will add it to the list. Um, another person says, uh, is the map revised yet? Or is West... Oh, same group. We buy our conservation group. Really want West Donegal on this map. So we started a debate, at least, on the programme. So that's good. Um, and Jimmy says, a flurry of offshore... Um, Consents published this week by the Department for the likes of coddling and aerial wind farms and still no marine protection orders in place. It seems to me that that is that we all, or at least the public seems to be very much behind marine protection order uh, um, uh, areas. And certainly in Donegal, they have very strong feelings, at least this one Twitter account has. Um, Be interesting to see what happens. Uh, you know, if a campaign starts and tries to get an increase in these areas, does that result in in change? If you feel strongly about this, get in touch with Fair Seas, lend your support and ask how you can further their aims of improving protection for our marine coastline. Yeah, and get in touch with your local TD, because I'd say a lot of the problem that, without knowing, just guessing, a lot of the problem that Fair Seas are facing is the usual political problem where like there's so many... Uh, interest groups in all different sides pulling yep. one way or another that they probably feel like they have to make like at least some progress so make this small bit of progress first and go from there mm. but if there isn't a kind of weight of numbers of people behind and wanting to do more then your average TD isn't going to do more because it might risk posts so if you feel strongly about it get in touch with your TD yeah uh, Sarah says, I have a question in relating to protecting our waters what about the PFOA PFA chemicals that poison the water supply so these are the um, chemicals that are linked with non-stick products, I think, like your non-stick frying pan. That coating is, if it comes off, it's not good. It, you know, um, if you want to 
do make a good environment choice and you're buying new pans, buy copper pans, I think is what you're supposed to do. Um, and these uh, these non-stick, while very convenient, um, that stuff that comes off is linked to cancer. And it, it, these substances do poison the water supply in some places. I am not aware, but this is um, maybe where someone might help me. I'm not aware of a particular source of that um, other than maybe residential waste or residential cleaning, I'm not aware that there's a particular source of that that's continuously poisoning uh, an Irish water supply. I would imagine that is something you probably would want to look at. Sarah, if you're listening, um, do you have more specifics on that? Because uh, otherwise it's seen, it's, I, 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 can't, I can't do much on it. Do you know anything about PFA, PFOA poisoning in Irish waters? I mean, I know so little about it that when you were saying the thing there about the copper pans, I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to get a copper pan for my next pan. So that, that is the, uh, the yeah, do. of my knowledge. Do. Yeah, I will. Um, it, bummer to clean off. But actually, you know, a bit of steel wool is amazing. Right. Um, you've learned lots today, haven't, haven't we? That insect stuff is amazing. Yeah, that's that's our that's our modus operandi, learning that's, lots. That's what we do. All right. Well, uh, have a, a great week, everybody. Uh, on Tuesday, we've got... Uh, what have we got in the Future pa- future Proof podcast on Tuesday, Aidan? Uh, on Tuesday... Oh, we DARPA. Will, uh, Are we doing DARPA? No, yes. that, will, that will be on Thursday. Thursday. Thursday, Future Proof Gold will be DARPA. Oh. And uh, Tuesdays will be the operating teethers of the future, oh, which nice. was extra. Okay, and which is also excellent. So listen out for both of those because they're very good. Aidan McKelvey was producing um, on the team also. Steve Daunt, Simon Keane, Jojo Cardozo was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof on Tuesday in the podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.